Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm joined by Tammy Abdullah. She's the national correspondent for USA Today covering criminal justice, and I'm so grateful to talk to her because today is the day that Judge Cahill gave the sentence to former officer Derek Chauvin in the killing of George Floyd. Officer Chauvin was facing a sentence essentially anywhere between 12.5 years and a 40-year maximum. According to the past case law, I think the true maximum was something closer to 30 years. Judge Cahill found that there were two aggravating factors, uh, violating Officer Chauvin's duty of trust and evidencing cruelty. And therefore, Officer Chauvin was sentenced to 22.5 years in prison. And given Minnesota's laws about early release for good behavior, he will likely be facing parole in about 14 years. Tammy, you have been on the ground following the case and the sentencing. I'm going to start with a really broad question, which is, can I ask you just for your reaction of the 22.5 year sentence? Sure, Jessica, thank you so much for having me. When I spoke with most people ahead of the actual sentencing hearing, the predictions I was getting was around 20 to 25 years. Judge Cahill, he's rather pragmatic. Uh, He made a point today of noting that he's relying and looking at sort of the facts of the case, not opinion or sympathy. And so, you know, with those estimates, um, I mean, a lot of people weren't that surprised. They're like, oh, yeah, he kind of split the difference. Yeah, it felt to me like this case was asked to represent so much more understandably than it could And I think Judge Cahill, when I was listening to him, it sounded like he understood basically nobody was going to be happy as a result of this sentence. Have you, in covering criminal justice, have you ever seen a judge say basically, look, this is a case about this particular set of facts. It can't be asked to solve all of the problems in our criminal justice system. And I've written out a long memo for you. Do you think that he had more than one audience in mind when he gave, when he handed down the sentence? I really think he actually had all of the audiences in mind when he did that. I mean, the fact that he was like, look, I wrote a 22 page memo here. Uh, You know, I'm not going to try and wax poetic or be pithy or clever Um, You know, I've never I I think actually a lot of judges do take that opportunity to make a comment to the defendant to to sort of speak their piece. Finally, Um, in this case, Judge Cahill sort of, I think, realizing, you know, the the political backdrop, um, the divisive nature that this case has sort of taken on um, over the last uh, year ish. I think he just sort of decided that he wanted to sidestep that entirely, that he wanted to kind of speak very plainly, shortly give the sentence, um, and then, you know, let people read afterward. Um, And, you know, I I think that that sort of actually uh, created a more muted response, perhaps, because we didn't have, um, you know, these big comments from a judge that people could then cite or get upset about. Uh, You had to go read the 22 pages of his uh, memorandum. Yeah, in in that way, it was a brilliant way to take some of the oxygen out of the room. Mm-hmm. And, but there was 
obviously there were times today that were really emotional. And I'm talking about the impact statements. Could you talk to us a little bit about who gave the impact statements um, for the victim side, for George Floyd's side, and whether or not you think that those change the sentence in any way? So the first person we actually heard from was George Floyd's seven-year-old daughter, Gianna. Um, And she spoke from like a live cell phone video. And it was, you know, she's very young and it was, you know, the the questions were, you know, what would she say to her dad? Um, She, you know, she said she would say that she miss, you know, misses him and loves him and, you know, wishes that he were there to help her brush her teeth. Um, you know, there were, there were a lot of, um, you know, moments there for, um, for emotion. I mean, you know, she was a young, his, his young child. Um, but, uh, I do think that, uh, George Floyd's brothers who spoke afterwards, um, really kind of, um, solidified the, um, the emotional part of the case because they were able to kind of put it into more words, um, obviously the image of his young daughter who will not grow up with a father is sad, but then you had, um, you know, you had his brother, Terrence Floyd, who was really emotional, you know, paused a few times as he spoke. He said that he wanted a maximum penalty, um, that he didn't want any more sort of slaps on the wrist. And then he sort of spoke to Derek Chauvin without speaking to Derek Chauvin. Um, with these impact statements, the the victims aren't really supposed to be speaking to Derek Chauvin directly. They're supposed to be speaking to the court. So what he sort of did was say, you know, you know, if I were to ask uh, Derek Chauvin anything, I would say um, X. And and Derek Chauvin was sitting only a few feet away from him in the courtroom. And you know, he went on to to really. Um, say, you know, why, what were you thinking? You know, how could, basically, how could you do this? And, and why would you continue to do this when, you know, he wasn't a threat anymore? Um, and that's, you know, a paraphrase. And, and his other brother, Philonis, also basically said he hasn't been able to sleep at night, that he's been essentially tortured by hearing, you know, his brother screaming for his mother and begging for his life. Um, and, you know, it, it was, I think that testimony did really, um, you know, all of them asked, um, except for uh, Gianna, um, all of them asked for the maximum, the harshest sentence. Um, and and basically, uh, you know, Filonis said, look, we have a, we have a life sentence here. We, we don't get to see George Floyd, um, you know, and um, and actually Terrence said, if this had happened to one of us and things were reversed, we would have already been in jail for murder, you know, for the rest of our lives. And so they I'm, I'm sure that made an impression on Judge Cahill, even if he had already sort of made up his mind. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is one of those questions about the purpose of victim impact statements and whether or not they allow for the criminal justice to say to people, we're hearing you, and how much they actually sway a court's opinion, because one has to imagine that this memo was written before the impact statements. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure that it affected the number of years in there. Um, could you bring us back into the courtroom for to talk to us about the statement by George Floyd's mother? I have some <laughs> of my own feelings about it, but I wasn't there. And I'm wondering what the sense in the courtroom was when she got up there to speak about her 
son who she described as an innocent man. Well, the courtroom was very quiet when she spoke. And uh, her ex-daughter-in-law, Derek Chauvin's ex-wife, was, um, I mean, there were, there were moments of, um, you know, where she looked incredibly on, like, on the verge of tears. And Derek Chauvin himself appeared, um, you know, if you looked at him carefully, his, he looked like he might be red around the eyes. He, he, um, he acted uh, very different than he had during the other sort of the victim impact statements. He looked down occasionally. You know, afterwards, he was blinking repeatedly. One might think maybe um, blinking back tears, although, you know, it's hard to make that leap. I wasn't exactly close enough to see. Um, but, you know, Carolyn Pawlenty, his mother, she spoke very, very um, emotionally about her son, he professed her love for him, called him her favorite son, um, and also uh, proclaimed his innocence. She, she said that the public would, would never know the, you know, how, how caring and selfless her son was, how honorable he is, how, you know, how, um, what basically, uh, that the public and the media had perpetrated him, um, excuse me, had portrayed him in a very negative light, so much as to even perhaps call him a racist. Now, I thought actually one of the most puzzling moments today was when we heard from Officer Chauvin himself, and he essentially said, I'm giving my sympathies to the family of George Floyd, and I'm not at liberty to say more because, as we all know, there's a pending federal investigation. And then he dropped this line, which, from my perspective, again, not in the courtroom, I thought was very strange, which was essentially, stay tuned to the family of George Floyd because more evidence might come out or something else might be said or revealed that will allow you to feel better about things. And yeah, yeah. two questions. One, what happened in the courtroom when he said that? And do you have any idea what he was talking about? Um, so, you know, it's only possible to speculate. When, when he made that comment, first of all, that was really his sort of first informal um, court comments made during during the trial. Previously, he's made he, he's re- replied to the judge about um, questions, you know, whether he's going to testify and that sort of thing. But he's never really spoken. You know, he directed his comments toward the family. He's, he offered his condolences. He did not apologize. Just offered his condolences. But also, what he said was that there was something they might be interested in that was going to be coming out, out soon that might give them peace of mind. Um, and, uh, you know, I spoke with a few folks who tried to guess as to what that might be. The most obvious thing, obviously, is that there is this federal case that's ongoing. A lot of people have presumed that there will be some sort of plea to ensure that, one, he serves his entire sentence, um, and, and two, that there is no uh, appeal of the state um, case. So, you know, there is that possibility that, you know, he has taken some sort of plea and the, you know, witnesses or the family, they won't have to go through the trauma and pain of another trial. Um, you know, there, there are other sort of more creative um, analyses of this. Um, you know, someone speculated that it might be related to his health. There was a comment in the um, I don't know if you caught this 
uh, Jessica, but in the filing by his attorney asking for probation or a lesser sentence, there was some reference to having a heart condition that he had been diagnosed with. Hmm. So, so, and you know, an attorney I spoke with, you know, speculated that perhaps he has some sort of heart issue, um, and he has some uh, negative diagnosis. That's a little more morbid, um, and maybe less likely, but, um, but anyway, that's that's sort of the line of thinking people have um, have brought forward in like the last few hours. But it really is, I agree, very puzzling. Um, and it's hard. I guess we'll find out what it is. Um, as a journalist, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, um, I guess uh, I guess I'll have to wait to find out what I'll be writing about. Or there's another possibility that I think this is one of those teasers, and we never mm. find out. Um, mm-hmm. Now I know that. I know I need to let you go. I did want to mention your piece. I think it was your second piece of the day in USA Today. Yes. Uh, analysis, white America can keep kicking Derek Chauvin, close quotes, but what does it mean for systemic change? Here's an unfair question. Can you tell us briefly, what do you see on the ground in terms of what people hope that this case may indicate going forward? I mean, ideally, I think what a lot of people have pressed for um, is, you know, national legislation that changes, that that significantly reforms policing. I mean, the reality of the piece and sort of the analysis part of it is that this was a really rare case. You, you know, you saw the levers of the justice system truly work in, um, you know, together for once, you know, indictment, conviction, stiff sentence. You had a historic $27 million civil settlement with the city. You had, uh, you know, you have these upcoming trials for the federal civil rights charges. There's this other unrelated charge of tax evasion against him. He also got a divorce, although that's that's a separate issue. And some people, there's been some interesting allegations of whether that's for the family to sort of shelter their, their belongings. So I guess whether or not she's trying to shelter her, her finances uh, based on civil actions where there might be money exactly. damages at issue. Right, right. The, like the civil settlement, um, obviously, probably, I mean, that's the city, but whether there's any other civil action that might occur, this tax evasion charge, whatever it may be that, that results from this, yeah, it's a, there's a question of that, and that was brought up separately. Um, but, but really, I mean, the main point of the analysis is that uh, what's interesting about Derek Chauvin is that he sort of became a bit of a lightning rod. Uh, you know, um, it was almost like in talking with police departments and police officers, there was this rush to disavow him, to differentiate themselves from him. So he's the bad apple. He's bad police, not us. And in fact, it's a it's a strategy that the prosecution took up during the case, um, differentiating Derek Chauvin again from other police at, in Minneapolis and, and elsewhere around the country. And in fact, they called themselves a pro-police prosecution. And and you had that play out, you know, during the course of the trial. And even today, that was reemphasized um, uh, in, in a way that some of the people I spoke with, you know, sort of felt was insulting that, you know, the, there shouldn't be this need. I mean, what what what's pro-police? What's anti-police? What about judging? Um, what about the fact that, you know, people who might be anti-police aren't necessarily anti-police? They just don't want to be abused. And so really I, sort of taking stock of this idea that in, in a lot of ways, Derek Chauvin's become a boogeyman, but because the case is so unique, because the state, you know, was represented by the AG's office, 
that, you know, doesn't pro bono attorneys working for them, you know, some of the best experts that some of these attorneys I've spoken with have, have ever heard um, testify in a trial. I mean, you know, his case had tons of video. I mean, this is not a typical case. And for so many reasons, this might have been a quote unquote typical case without that cell phone video. I mean, I'm thinking back to other instances where without the video, I mean, we remember that very cursory sanitized report from the Minneapolis mm-hmm. Police Department describing the death totally yes. different after the video. Yes. This is obviously just the beginning of a conversation. We would love to have you back to talk more about all of your work. I will note that you are talking to us from a hotel room in Minneapolis, which listeners is part of the reason you heard the sirens and part of the reason that I know you have to get back to work. So Tammy Abdullah, national correspondent for USA Today covering criminal justice at LA Tams. What a pleasure. We thank you for your very limited time today and for spending it with us on Passing Judgment. Thank you. I really feel so fortunate that we were able to have Tammy Abdullah back to talk about the sentencing today. Passing Judgment listeners might remember we had her right after the verdict was handed down. She was in the courtroom. It was just invaluable to hear from her. And of course, as she said, This is the beginning of a conversation. As we both said, this is not the end. And we continue to look forward to be able to have more experts on to talk about these issues with you in more depth. And if you want to reach us, you know where to reach me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast at Past Judgment Pod. And we will wish everybody a calm day ahead.